camping. I love it. Many people hate it, and cases like this one sometimes make me question why I enjoy it so much. A heartless killer stalked his prey while they were innocently camping and enjoying the natural beauty found in one of Canada's gorgeous parks. This man killed six innocent, fun-loving campers just to satisfy himself and to get what he felt like he was entitled to. The search for this man ended up being one of the most expensive and well-known cases in Canada's history. The killer is up for parole this year. Welcome to Twisted Travel and True Crime. If you are a returning listener, thank you so much for subscribing. I truly appreciate you. Thank you so much to those of you who have taken the time to give me a rating and a review. I appreciate the feedback and a huge thank you to those of you who have recommended the podcast to friends or on social media. You're such a blessing. If you're a first-time listener, I hope you enjoy today's case and become a subscriber. All right, here we go. Canada has many things in abundance, like hockey players, parkas, and Tim Hortons franchises. But one of the most fascinating facts about Canada is they also have more surface area covered by lakes than any other country in the world. Bet you totes didn't know that, eh? Alright, that was it for my terrible attempt at a Canadian accent. My apologies, Canadians. The Canadians have beautiful money, but the coins get the most attention. A loony, the Canadian $1 coin, gets its name from the picture of the Canadian bird, the loon, that appears on the side of one of the coins. A toonie, the name for the $2 coin, gained a similar nickname to match the sound of the loony. In today's case, we'll start in Wells Gray Provincial Park. The park is known as Canada's Waterfall Park because it boasts 41 named waterfalls, which are at their most impressive in May and early June after the spring thaw. I haven't been to the park myself, but from what I hear, it's absolutely breathtaking. Not only are the waterfalls spectacular, but you can experience whitewater rafting, bear watching, and horseback riding if you so choose. There's plenty of wildlife to enjoy if that's your preference. Prior to European residents in the area, the land was prime hunting ground for the Shuswap, Chicotan, and Canem Lake indigenous people. It was the beauty and the peace of the wilderness, along with the opportunity to share the camping experience with their children, that drew the Johnson family. On August 2, 1982, Bob and Jackie Johnson decided to take their two daughters, Janet and Karen, who were only 13 and 11 years old. They visited Jackie's parents, George and Edith Bentley, and invited them to go along. Their plan was to enjoy nature, pick some berries, and have some quality family time. The Johnsons chose to camp in Wells Gray Park, which is located in British Columbia. This park is huge. It covers 1.3 million acres and is British Columbia's fourth largest park. They chose to pitch their tents and camp in a secluded area near the old Bear Creek prison site. The Bentleys, who were the grandparents, arrived shortly after with their truck and camper van. It had a little boat on top. Two weeks later, on August 16th, Bob Johnson failed to return to work. His boss made a few phone calls, and the family realized that no one had heard from them. At first, it was thought that they possibly ran into trouble and were just a day behind. 
Maybe the truck had mechanical issues, or maybe they'd gotten lost. The next day, co-workers, family, and friends still hadn't heard from the family, and so police were contacted. Police, co-workers, and family organized searches looking for them, but no one could find them. Five weeks later, on September 13th, a mushroom hunter found a burnt-out car. My mom loves mushroom hunting, and my mouth is watering just thinking about her crispy, delicious morel mushrooms. Mushroom hunting takes her all over the woods near where we live. She would definitely be the one to find anything interesting in the woods near our home. The Wells Gray Mushroom Hunter found a burnt-out car with the driver's side door open. The car was in a clearing off of a logging road near Battle Mountain Road. This was 13 miles, as the crow flies, from Bear Creek. The car described was similar to the car that the Johnsons had been driving. When police approached the car, they were careful to document everything. They found a pile of burnt bones in the back seat. Because of the fire damage, they were very careful because many of the bones, if they were bumped or even touched in the slightest, they would crumble to ash. They carefully removed the bones and bone fragments and realized they had four adults. Once the bones were in the back of the car were cleared, they opened the trunk. Inside, they found two more bodies, but these were the bodies of children. Locals had driven by the family as they enjoyed their vacation. They reported seeing the family camped at Bear Creek. Police followed the directions and found the original camping area. While searching, they found six spent 22 caliber ammunition shells. They also found some beer caps and some cold bottles of beer that had been laid in the creek nearby to keep cold. It was a favorite brand of beer, known to be enjoyed by Bob Johnson. Two sticks were also found that were sharpened on the end and most likely used by the two girls to roast marshmallows. What was not found was the grandparents' camper and all of their camping gear. Also missing was a boat and a motor they had brought with them. They searched nearby, but no other clues could be found. They originally assumed it was a local who killed the family, but nothing came from their interviews, and there were no more clues to follow so the case seemed to stall a bit. About six months later, in April of 1983, police decided to do a reenactment of the killings. It was filmed on the site of the murders and then was broadcast across Canada. They hoped the reenactment would help spark someone's memory. The police helped create an exact replica of the Ford camper van down to the last detail. They even put an aluminum boat on top and strapped a motor to the back of the camper. They drove the camper from British Columbia to Quebec with a sign on it asking if someone had seen a vehicle like that, hoping someone would see it and remember something. Before the camper arrived in each town, the police would hold press conferences and publicize the camper's arrival. 1,300 people came forward claiming they had seen it. One man even came forward saying he had painted the truck. Not only that, but the two men who were in the truck had asked him to dispose of a twenty-two rifle for them. The same two men had been reportedly seen at a rest stop nearby as well. Sketches were drawn of the men who asked to have the truck painted. The men in the sketches looked similar to the men that had been at the rest stop. 
the men were described as two scruffy French-Canadian men who were heading east towards Quebec. Of course, the police looked into this, but regrettably, many hours were wasted on these two men because it turned out that this was an unrelated vehicle and the men were completely innocent. Hours and hours of police work, thousands of sightings, hours of interviews, all wasted time as the time, the leads, and the effort all went fell through. Once again, the case seemed to stall, but not for long because 10 months after the murders, with the trail running cold for the killer, the Bentley's camper truck was finally found. Forestry workers found it on yet another old logging road near Trophy Mountain. This spot was only 15 miles from the murder site and only 20 miles from where the Johnson's car was located, but it was on the other side of the mountain. It had been burned as well. The killer used an accelerant, probably gasoline mixed with something else. It looked like the truck had been driven towards a ravine, and if it had been driven into the ravine, it probably would never have been found. But huge logs had blocked the truck's path, and were the probable reason the camper had been burnt. Police lifted the wreck out with a helicopter and had it transported to a crime lab. The burnt remains provided few clues, but the location was interesting. The logging road was not easy to access, and the location confirmed once again that it was most likely someone who knew the area or who was a local instead of an outsider to be the one who committed the murder police decided to essentially start over. They went door-to-door in the small community and questioned everyone in town a second time. This time, a man named David William Shearing, who was 24, was identified by someone as a possible suspect. They told police that about a year earlier, Shearing had inquired about how to re-register a Ford pickup and to repair a hole in the door. When police found the burnt wreckage, they saw that there was a bullet hole in the passenger side door. Police had not released the information about the bullet hole to the public, so they knew this was a solid lead. Shearing lived only three miles from the site of the murders. Shearing had an unsavory reputation and a criminal record for assault and drug possession. Even so, by all accounts, he grew up in a respectable family. His father had been a prison guard and his brother was a sheriff. Shearing had graduated from high school and had successfully completed a heavy mechanics course. The police decided to keep a very close eye on him and figure out a way to surprise him with the knowledge they had about him and the truck. He was due to appear in court a few days after the police had learned about him. Recently, he had been found in possession of stolen property. He had stolen a significant number of tools from two different businesses earlier in the year. Not only that, but Shearing was a suspect in a hit and run. They decided that this was how they would bring him in without letting him know of their suspicions that he was a cold-blooded killer. One police officer drove with him for two hours from Shearing's home to the police station while making small talk. This officer knew he had killed six people had to pretend it was no big deal to be transporting this man to the station. Can you imagine having that information in your back pocket and having this scumbag sitting next to you? It'd be very challenging to put on a friendly face. Once Shearing was in the station, police asked him about the tools and then 
asked him about the hit and run they also believed that he had done. He quickly confessed that he had accidentally run over a homeless man while drinking and driving. It was at this point that police began to confront him about the family of six being murdered. Shearing accidentally admitted that he had heard the murders were committed at Bear Creek. This was information that had not been released to the public at the time. This case is a great example of why police don't let a lot of information out for everyone to know. They were able to figure out that he knew much more than he was admitting to. After a lot of effort and persuasion, police managed to convince him to confess to the six murders. He even agreed to reenact the murders and to turn over the murdered family possessions. He handed over the twenty-two rifle, which was matched as the murder weapon. Ironically, he had been one of the first individuals to be interviewed after the six bodies had been found. The initial interview took place in his backyard, about a mile from the murder scene. At the time of the first interview, the murder weapon was hanging on the wall of the family home. When police were later questioned as to why they didn't see the firearm and test it, they said they didn't have any right to go into the home and no right to examine his guns because they had no reason to suspect him at the time. Initially, Shearing stated that when he saw the campers, he decided he wanted to steal all their stuff. So he walked right into their camp with his gun. He shot the men first, then shot the women. He placed all four of them into the back seat of the car. He then went into the tent of the two little girls who were sleeping at the time, and he killed them. He loaded them into the trunk, drove the car to its location, and lit it on fire with five gallons of gasoline. He then went back to the campsite, which he cleaned up and then proceeded to steal the camper and the boat. He decided to plead guilty to the six counts of second-degree murder. In his written statement, he said, I was watching them from behind a camper and walked out and started shooting. The family was sitting around enjoying a campfire at the time. He went on to say, quote, I put the bodies in the car, four in the back seat and two little ones in the trunk. I poured gasoline and it just went woomph and I watched it burn, end quote. Police believed the confession was not totally true. They believed there was more to the story. Why would someone kill six people just for a camper and some camping equipment? Police had to accept this version of events because of lack of evidence. The Supreme Court Justice, who was in charge of the case, said, quote, What we have, very simply, is a cold-blooded and senseless execution of six defenseless and innocent victims, end quote. The victims were known to the prisoner, and they did not in any way provoke him. Shearing knew the camp was there. He carefully scouted the situation, and then he went home and returned with a twenty-two rifle. This was not a quick decision. He had time to think and make his plans. He also had time to consider his choices. He was sentenced to six concurrent life terms, with no chance of parole for at least twenty-five years. After Shearing's conviction, Sergeant Mike Eastham interviewed him and said, You know why I'm here, David. I think you sexually abused those girls before you killed them. You told me some time ago that you would consider telling me the rest of the story after you were sentenced. Well, I'm here to collect David, and I'm not taking no for an answer. 
David Shearing finally told Sergeant Eastham what had really happened. He said he lusted over the young girls. Oh yes, he had been watching them in the woods for a few days and was determined to sexually abuse them, even if it meant killing the parents and grandparents. He said, quote, I saw the family when they set up camp and spent several days spying on them. That is so creepy. Imagine just having somebody's eyes on you and you don't even know it. Yuck. The fantasy to have sex with Janet and Karen, the 11 and 13 year old, kept growing inside of him. At dusk, on August 10th, 1982, he walked into the campsite with his rifle, killing Bill, then Jackie, then George, then Edith, in cold blood. The two girls were already in their tent, ready for bed. He said he looked inside and told them there was a dangerous biker gang and that they should stay inside while their parents ran for help. He then carried the adults, one at a time, placing them into the back seat of the car. He covered all four of the bodies with a blanket. He then crawled into the tent with the girls. He said the 13-year-old blonde-haired Janet was the object of his violent sexual fantasies, and he said that she started to cry when he hit her. He said, quote, At this point, I lost all the excitement that I felt. I wasn't able to continue any further in this sadistic part of it. Later that night, he put the two girls in the front seat of the car. Imagine these two little girls sitting with him in the front seat while their mom, dad, grandma, and grandpa are lying dead, covered with a blanket in the back seat. I can't imagine that those girls didn't have an idea that they were in there, and just wait till you find out why as time goes on. He took them to his home first. And then later he took them to a small fishing cabin on the Clearwater River. During a one-week time period, he repeatedly raped them. They eventually left the cabin after they were almost discovered. Apparently, a prison guard was supervising prisoners from a local jail. They were fishing on the river near the cabin. He came to the door of the cabin to tell Shearing not to be alarmed. Shearing hid the girls behind the door and told them to stay quiet. The guard noticed nothing unusual. Shearing then took the girls back to his family farm the next day and killed them on August 16th. He coaxed Karen, the youngest daughter, into the woods and shot her in the back of the head. He repeated the process with Janet the next day. He told the girls to turn around so he could pee, and when they did so, he shot each one in the back of the head. He put their bodies in the trunk of the family car, which he had been driving all week, with the decomposing bodies inside it. And of course, he was toting the girls around in the front seats. He found a secluded spot and burnt the car. Of course, Sergeant Eastham double-checked with the prison guard that Shearing had told him about, and the prison guard remembered the meeting exactly as Shearing had described it. I'm sure that prison guard wishes he'd have seen the girls and been able to help them. Shearing said that he carved his initials on the wall of the little fishing cabin. Eastham asked one of the constables to go and check out the cabin. The constable found Shearing's initials on the wall, and they were right next to a second set of initials, JJ, for the 13-year-old Janet Johnson. After burning the car and finding out he could do nothing to keep the truck in camper, Shearing took everything else of value or anything that he wanted from the camper 
and then he drove it up the mountain and set it ablaze as well. In 2008, he was up for parole. He actually found someone to marry him in 1995. Heather Ennis should, stood shoulder to shoulder with him and then spoke on his behalf. She said the two have a wonderful marriage. She's seen so much change in him since they met in 1993. She says the man's heart is in the right place and that she's just there to back him up. She has two children. Shearing lives in a cell, but is also able to have conjugal visits. He has a garden and a TV. He was asked if he had anything he'd like to say. In 2008, he pulled out a piece of paper sharing his first apology in 25 years. He said the crime was brutal and an inexcusable tragedy, resulting in a tremendous loss to the community that he can never make up for. He said he hates to be in his own skin. Outside of the prison gates, family and friends of the victim say the apology means nothing. They say don't listen to anything he has to say because he has no remorse. He still is reported to have sexual fantasies that are violent in nature and hasn't completed the sex offender treatment program to prepare for freedom. He applied again in 2012 and was turned down again. As of right now, he's still in jail and family members of the deceased have appealed for relief from the agony of reliving the tragedy and campaigning against his release every few years. He is up for parole again this year in 2021. Let's hope that a man who killed people in such a brutal, awful way is not allowed to walk freely again. It's amazing that a sentence of six life terms could mean only 38 years. And it's worse that family and friends have to go through such turmoil, stress, and strain of having to relive this violent crime every time the possibility of parole comes up. I wish them strength and perseverance in the upcoming year. Thank you so much for listening today. If you're inclined to do so, please give the podcast a good rating and review or share it with a friend. Word of mouth is huge for a little podcast like this one. If you'd like to support the podcast monetarily, you can do so. The link to do that is in the episode description, and that is also where you will find the show notes or my resources for this episode. Thank you so much for listening, and once again, I'd like to wish you fair winds and following seas. Thank you.